Thank you all for joining us this evening for the online launch of this book that we're very proud of uh, here at WIDA Books, uh, our latest title by our acclaimed author, E.C. Osondu. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'll just introduce uh, the author. E.C. Osondu has won numerous prizes, including the Kane Prize, and the Pushcart Prize is the author of several books, including Voice of America, a collection of short stories, This House is Not for Sale, a novel, and Alien Stories. His latest book, which we are launching here today, is published for the first time in Nigeria, the first time in Nigeria by Wida Books. So welcome, Isi Osondu. Thank How you, are you today? I'm good, very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Great of you to um, to join us for this launch. And uh, how are you feeling about uh, the publication of this book? Very excited. I was quite excited to hold it in my hands, you know, when it came out and yeah, you sent copies to me. Very excited. Like I said earlier, I said it's a very handsome looking book. Just on the cover, just based on the cover. So the, the yes. story itself is gorgeous, even if I say so myself. So I really hope people get the chance to read it and see for themselves. When the sky is ready, the stars will appear, is the one read book of the month. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Very excited. Very and excited. it's being read all over Africa on very the one read app. Very, very excited, very needed, a very African book. And I'm happy with the fact that, you know, it's being published in Nigeria and it's available for everyone who would only say, oh, how can I find the book? Where can I buy it? Now this is available and you can literally walk into the place with her books in GRE and you get a copy. So don't ask me on Facebook, how can I find a copy? I'm happy that it's been read across the continent because, you know, I kept mentioning Africa as we were chatting because the continent really needs this consciousness. Let's fix it. Let's think about it. Let's fix it so that the stars will truly not only appear, but they will shine. Can you yeah. talk a bit about the structure of this novel and how you arrived at the particular structuring? Well, I knew that there were a lot of stories that have been told about people who travel to Europe via the desert and the sea, especially mostly journalistic. And all they do uh, tell stories of the horrors, okay, of these trips. And then of course, there are also those who do the other thing, which is kind of frame this in, the, in terms of triumphalism, you know, the person it's like an odyssey, the young man travels and goes through these horrors, and then eventually he uh, gets to Europe, and after that it's paradise for him. But I, I didn't want to do any of these extremes. I was more interested in telling, one, individuating these people. That's something that I usually don't see in those narratives. I wanted this to be the story of individuals, okay? So that when you read the story, 60 migrants die in the sea. You know, that's like it's wrapped up in such a way, it's framed in such a way that these are not people, these are migrants and they're a group of people. But I wanted to also tell the stories of the individuals who make up these migrants. Who are they? Okay. And, you know, the, the thing that interests me is something that you know, is theorized a lot in literature, uh, which is what some people say is what every story does, which is like that every story is a disruption of the existing order. 
You know, you go to the Garden of Eden, there is some order there, and then the serpent comes and disrupts it. You know, that's, it's interesting. So I was also interested in that from a theoretical point of view, you know, where is this idyllic Gulu station, um, Gulu station village, uh, and who is going to come and disrupt this ideal location, and with what? And so Europe intrudes and things are never the same again. So all of that. But I wanted the story to also have the, the uh, flavor of uh, maybe like a parable. And so those chapters are just short and succinct, you know, and to the point. So like all of parable, that. Yeah, like, like also in some sense, like an allegory. Like an allegory, like a fable. That was the quality that I wanted it to have. Uh, yeah, yeah. So okay. that informed the structure. Thank you. Now, there are lots of, I mean, taking on from what you've said, there are lots of stories within stories, uh, folk tales, the Talantolo. We, we in my part of Nigeria, we have a version of that. Uh, I think we call it Arodo. And uh -huh. a lot of people will. So it's almost like collecting communal stories. Um, can, you, can you talk a bit about what you were trying to achieve by having this sense of collectivity to the story? Yeah, even the part that I read, there's a joke there. It's a famous joke, you know, I'm also interested in jokes. It's a famous joke about the man who's in the desert trying, getting lost and trying to get water and someone tries to sell him a tie. And he thinks that's a useless item of clothing. And then he gets to this place and discovers you can't actually go into the restaurant without putting on a tie. And then of course, there are lots of those things that you talk about, the folk tales and the stories and the, all the myth and all the fables, all kind of, yeah, I've, I've never been one for this one master narrative. I've always been one for having like a stream and then different tributaries coming into the ocean, coming into the water from. So all of these things, I think, I just think bits and pieces that I kind of brought to, to enrich the story. You've kept your characters, you've given them a sense of idealism. You've kept them kind of innocent in a way, would you, so even though they're skirting horrors, we, we, we never see them degraded. Yeah, yeah one, of the, one of the lines I think from the book also says that, you know, uh, we lost a lot of things, but not our sense of dignity or something. I, I can't, I can find it, but I can't find it right now. You know, and that's, that's very important. You know, as one, as one gets older and as one continues to write, one realizes that it's also very important to clothe your characters with dignity. Um, I think that Black people, Africans, we one of the things that we've been endowed with and imbued with and imbued with is that we have a lot of dignity and pride. And it's been the job of those who are not like us to strip us of our dignity and strip us of our pride. That has been their constant, uh, I think that has been their constant duty, as it were. Whether they are doing it consciously or not, there has always been an attempt to strip the black body of dignity through enslavement, through racism, okay, which continues even as we speak. So it's very important that we do not join in stripping ourselves of dignity, you know. And so that's, that's also a task and burden that the writer has. Uh, prior to this time, 10 years ago, I wouldn't say this, 10 years ago, if, if you ask me, I'll say, oh, well, you know, it's to tell the unvarnished truth. But if you realize daily that you live in a world where people are constantly doing stuff to take away from your pride and your dignity, then you cannot join in that. Okay, so that was also something that informed, you know, it was a conscious decision, you know, that these are not just some strays who you find, 
who are desperate to get to Europe because they are dying in their homes or they are starving. But there are people with dreams and hopes, like your Vasco da Gama, you know, who came here years ago, hundreds of years ago, and you know, he got on a ship and came here. You know, he he came, he traveled with dignity, he traveled with pride. You know, uh, uh, all of them, Livingston, all of them, Mary Slay, so they came here. Those who left Portugal for for this place, they didn't ask our permission before they came. Okay, they didn't ask our permission, and you know they came and we hosted them, which is really a bad thing because uh, people who have the tendency that Africans have to be too hospitable end up paying dearly for it, whether they are called Native Americans or they are called Nigerians or they are called Africans. So, but all of that is to say that I think it's very important that we clothe ourselves with uh, dignity, even in fiction writing. And uh, labels like. Uh illegal immigrants, hmm. my, even migrants, uh, you don't employ any of those uh, labels. At some point, they call themselves travelers. You know, they're a band of travelers. Yes. Um, yeah, just interested in what you chose, words that you chose not to use, if you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, words, words are very powerful. Words are very powerful. And this is something that I also explore in a different work. Um, about what it means to be an alien and how that alienates you, you know, um, legal or illegal alien and how those words can actually wound. Okay, so it's, it's a common expression that has been questioned and people have debated it uh, on social media and in, in different places that what's the difference between an expatriate and a foreigner and an immigrant? Why am I not called an expatriate in the United States, even though I'm a college professor and, you know, and I come from a different country? Whereas the man who also does the same thing and lives in Nigeria is considered an expatriate. Why, why is that word reserved for him and why is it not used for me? So words are very powerful. What people call themselves and what people allow themselves to be called uh, is very important. You know, for, for years, international students in the United States were known as foreign students. And that immediately told you that they were not of here, okay, that they were not of here. And that immediately does something, uh, does something to them. When I was a kid, when I was younger, growing up in Lagos, you know, the, the, when you went to visit your cousins or your aunties uh, in the summer, well, it's not really in the summer, but like between July and September, you are called a holiday maker. And when you're a holiday maker, you're treated as a holiday maker. You don't do chores. Well, in my own experience, you don't do chores. And you go to see places, you go to visit places, and you're treated as a holiday maker. So you're there on holidays, and that's who you are. Of course, there's a different thing if you move back and start living in that house. Then you're no longer a holiday maker. Then you start doing dishes like everybody else. You have to sweep the floor. Yes, you do. You do that. You do that. You know, you start doing that. I, I remember uh, my friend was hosting me in Lagos and um, at night, you know, he, the air conditioner in my room was on. So at night, you know, we came back and he went and took a shower and came to talk with me. And I said, oh, why are you, you're taking a shower, you're not wearing your clothes, you're not wearing a shirt. You know, the air conditioner is gonna freeze you. He said, what air conditioner? I said, the one in your room. He said, the one in his room is not on. I said, but mine is on. He said, yeah, it's on because you're here for two weeks. But if you're here longer, then you'll go and take a shower like me and sleep with the fan. 
I said, oh, okay. So that tells you a whole lot. You know, if you're a visitor, if you're an alien, if you're an immigrant, if you're a foreigner, these labels do stick and they do have, you know, they do have meanings that are far beyond what you might see. So I didn't want to damage them further, you know, uh, by calling them any of those names. But they are travelers, like uh, the travelers who came from Portugal. Um. Yeah, a bit more about your writing style, because I think that with uh, writings by writers from Africa, uh, we don't talk about style and uh, stylics, stylistics enough, often about issues. And you have a distinctive style. And uh, during editorial work on this, we were very conscious of it. We, you know, the tendency to, you know, employ maybe fewer commas than uh, some other writers which then uh, lends uh, very powerfully to the cadence of the lines, the lyricism of the lines, the lines running on, and we were conscious to um, keep key to keep that. Um, so if you, and also this very deceptive, uh, deceptively simple style, which is actually not easy to achieve. Can you talk a bit, and I've seen this in, you know, some of your other writings and it's here, you definitely, have you know a very distinctive voice? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, thanks for respecting that. You know, it's a, it's a constant battle that I have to fight, even with uh, with editors, with other editors. Yeah, you know, um, run on lines is like a, seen as a grammatical for far. I know that, but then I deliberately have run on lines and uh, just don't use enough enough commas. But it's it's deliberate, it's conscious because I'm also trying to imitate the way the story comes to me. Now, I'm not sounding mystical, uh, but the truth is that for me, writing first begins in the head for a long time, you know, and it sits there for a long time, you know. Uh, like I told you, the process of writing this novel itself didn't take years for me because the novel has been in my head for long and I've been thinking about it, you know, kind of chewing it, mulling it, you know, playing it around in my head. And so when I sat down to write, I want to be as faithful uh, as much as possible to that voice that gives me the story. And so I tried to pour it down. Of course, uh, in the editorial process, you also tried to work towards clarity um, so that even though the voice might be very clear to me, it might not be very clear to the reader. Okay, and so you had to take, take away some of those things. But it's also very important to be as faithful to that voice as much as possible. You know, and uh, I'm also very conscious, very informed by the nature of oral storytelling, I think. Perhaps that too has tends to have uh, an influence on on the way I write. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, one one cannot miss that. Even dialogue, quite often quotes are there's there's um there's an imprecise tendency when it comes to attribution. Um, quotes are often attributed to. You know, they said, we said, it's, mm. it, it's rarely individualized. Mm. Um, and, and also that's a deliberate choice for this book. Uh, if you can talk a bit about that. Yeah, I, I don't think that when, the, when I handed in the manuscript, there were no um, dialogue tags initially, yes. But I think that was going a bit too far. So <laughs> I think in the first edits, line of edits, you know, the dialogue tags were, were introduced. But again, what I wanted to do was tell what I would consider um, a continental, global story of the continent. 
Um, and also, like I said, in the nature of African oral storytelling, there is, there is a, you know, the, like I said, have you had the story of this? You know, sometimes it's also said that, have you one, you know, have you had something that someone said? You know that the, these people usually say, and it's usually like a collective. You know, even the the proverbs and the sayings always seem handed down, but they are never attributed to one person. You know, precision is not the strong suit. Oh, sometimes you need to be precise, but that's not really what it's what it's about. You know, so that's also um, an influence there. The lead character goes without a name. Yeah. Even though sometimes he refers him to himself as Nene's son, he, That's he's right. not named, and he's he's actually unique uh, in not being named in the book. Um, what are you trying to represent by by not giving him a name, like an everyman figure? That's that's slightly that, like a candid figure, slightly that. Um, but also one of the things that I was conscious about was the you know. Nigeria has become more tribalistic by the day. If, each year I visit, I find that people of my generation have a, a different attitude to tribe than the younger generation for some reason, which is not their fault. You know, they have also been very divisive leadership um, recently in Nigeria and all of that, which is a factor. But I, I was also trying not to, for instance, Gulu Station. You know, where is Gulu Station? Uh, Lord, I might know this. We used to have a friend called Izia Ahmad. He was very famous in Lagos literary circles as a poet, as a lover of Bob Dylan's music, and we shared uh, an affinity because he was also an advertising copywriter, which I was um, 500 years ago. So we kind of knew ourselves. And uh, Izier Ahmad uh, probably was one of the most famous poets because he was what was called an update poet himself. Afam Aki and uh, Uche Nduka were one of the first to have books published as poets individual poetry collections, you know. So Izia Ahmad is from either Plateau or Cardona State, but of course he spent most of his life in Lagos. But he was from a place called Gudu Station. Wow. Yes, I think he's from a place called Gudu Station. And that has always fascinated me. That has always remained in my consciousness. You know, it's either in Cardona State or in Plateau State, you know. And so that was where that came from. So I could, I could have... I could have placed the story in Igbo land. I could have placed the story in Hausa land. I could have placed it in Yoruba land, but I didn't want to do that. I deliberately didn't want to do that. And if you look at the group, they are an eclectic group of Nigerians, you know. Uh, but I was very conscious of not giving it a particular hue, a particular identifiable flavor. So how do I run away from that? If I name him, if I name him this, or I name him that, you know, it's going to be very... Uh, I just wanted him to not to have that kind of identity. Oh, wow. Well, I'm glad I asked that question. Yes, yeah, it's a very, it took me back, yeah. And anyone who we have very, I have very warm memories of Izzy Ahmad. He was, he was a great guy, you know, he was, he was a great guy. I mean, uh, he, he, his name used to come up in literary conversations a lot. You yeah. Know, back in the days of the good old creativity and Right, so, right, right. Yes, that's when, that's when right. there was a lot of talk about the third generation yes. of Nigerian writers. Yes. Uh, I don't know what generation there is anymore no. now. This generation is generation Z right now. The Z generation. Yes, I think they moved, away, now. they moved away from numbers to letters now. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yes. So Gulu Station takes us nicely to the sense of place in this novel, uh, the desert, the sea, the depiction of these places. Uh, Rome, uh, Rome, obviously, because people crossing the continent to Europe, uh, uh, Italy is probably uh, yeah the closest to the African landmass. But when they land in Italy, they're not getting Rome is still far away. So you've clearly chosen Rome here for a very very important reason. And uh, can you talk about the sense of place and then touch on this really really um, almost classic classical kind of depiction of Rome? I mean, yeah, not necessarily. Um... Not necessarily geography, you know, I mean, I just got back from Rome. I was there last week, in, coincidentally, to uh, to launch the Italian version of the book. Okay, so uh, there was a lot of questions in that direction. So, you know, why Rome? Uh, but, you know, as I went to a Catholic boarding school, and so it says Rome is in heaven. And as someone who went to a Catholic boarding school, there was always this consciousness of Rome being the equivalent of heaven because it's the place where the Pope lives and it's the place where they speak Latin and you imagine- The eternal city, the eternal city. The eternal city of Rome, you know. So it's, it's been there much more in my consciousness than probably a place like London, uh, simply because of my education in the Catholic uh, school setting. So that was partly, partly that, you know. And so the line starts by Rome is in heaven because it is also seen as an ideal, you know, we call it the eternal city. It's like seen more of an ideal than a real place, you know? And so one of the things that I was telling my, uh, uh, that I, I was telling my publicist on Sunday was that I thought everyone would be in church on Sunday in Rome and she laughed and said, church, what church? You know, everybody's out drinking beer by 10 a.m. in the morning, what church? And I was kind of shocked. Right? She said, oh, her grandmother is in church, but she's not. So, so again, like I told her, I said I didn't. That was one information I didn't want to hear, because there is this ideal in my head, and that's the ideal that you have in the novel. You know, this perfect picture of of place. So I'm, I mean, I'm aware of the fact that, of course, the closest place to North Africa, if you look at the map, is actually is actually uh, Italy, and that's that's the place that this man is likely to end up. But it's also the most idealized, you know, it's the most idealized place. So that also plays a role in, in placing him, placing him, giving him that trajectory, that movement from, from Africa to Rome. Well, well, thank you for it. Uh, at the time we were turning to, um, you know, working or to prepare this novel towards uh, publication, I had not long returned from Rome myself and I was still really, really, my head was still whirling in just all the, the glory of it. Yeah. And using that to console oneself as uh, COVID-19 ravaged the world. So to now see uh, Rome in this book like this, I, I treasured it. Thank you so much. The Country of Rumors, mm -hmm. clearly loosely based on Libya before the That's fall of Gaddafi. That's very correct. Can you say a bit about the chosen timeline for this story and why? Well, the time, the, the country of rumors is, you know, again, all these are places like these are stops, pit stops on the way to Rome. And uh, each place has its own conflict. Some places have more 
draw. Some places have uh, have a huge, huge, uh, huge attraction. But this was Libya uh, just uh, before Gaddafi's overthrow, and it was a place where he would have thought that this uh, the same thing that happened that kind of drove him away from Gulu Station, the appearance of the Seven Man Army is replicating itself here. You know, that's that's one. And then, of course, there is the figure there who is also a bros-like figure who invites them to his home, you know, and tries to say, hey, why are you guys taking this harrowing route? I can actually help you, you know, but you have to carry a little parcel for me. And then you end up, and you end up with a lot of money and you end up flying there. So again, that is like, uh, the, the Gulu station in miniature, you know, that brush-like figure trying to make them, but he's clearly focused. And, you know, that chapter again, helps me to kind of highlight again, the near spiritual quality of Nene. You know, he says Nene is looking him, he could see her blinking, he could see her making signs at him that he should leave, he should leave. And she's like a guiding spirit. She's always like something perched on his shoulders, you know, trying to put him all right at every point saying, look, this is the path, follow it, don't go this way, don't, don't go that way. The other thing again that it made me, uh, helped me to do was also to talk about the, the seeming um, economic uh, comfort in which the people from their country live, and yet they were complaining about it, and yet they were, you know, they were, they were ready to, to overthrow, to overthrow the government, which happens much, much later. And the question, we're asking now is are they better or, or are they not you know what has the country become even with the support of the west and the overthrow of Gaddafi you know there's this song that says now that we found love what are we going to do with it now that they've had their revolution and they have removed the evil dictator what has the country become with the support of the United States what has the country become is this still a country you know so it's it's a uh, it's there, there so that gave me the opportunity to raise all of those questions, you know, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I didn't make them stop in that. You were saying something earlier about, you know, what disrupts. Yes, I mean, what you just said, Gulu Station, uh, relatively content life until the appearance of bros, and also in the country of rumors, they, they have a lot of, I mean, the, the travelers think that the people in the country of rumors have it all, you know, laid out for them, and yet they're not, they're not, they're not happy. So, in terms of you know the disruptor, uh, the 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 character of Bros. Yeah. What is this? Can you talk a bit I about symbolism? Of I love him. I love him. Bros. I, I love Bros. Myself. <laughs> I love him. He's he's a very interesting. What kind of what kind of life does Bros. live in Rome? And it's really important for him. Who have come on this junket, this once in a lifetime junket to show off, to win the love of someone he's always wanted, you know, to disrupt the existing order. Seemingly, you know, it, it says that every day of his visit was like a party. And that was what he wanted. He wanted every day of his visit to be like a party, you know, uh, to bring this kind of glam and, you know, and fun and, you know, everything that you associate with Europe. He wanted to bring it. He wanted to bring it to uh, to Gulu Station, and he does successfully. But he's also not an evil person. 
It's just that he's not the most honest person on earth, you know, uh, because even when he gives the young man the map, he didn't think that the young man was going to do it. He yeah. Basically, yeah. yeah, he basically was trying to do well. If you ever, it's like you, you meet someone while you were flying to, to Italy the last time, and, you know, you get to talk, you're sitting, uh, your seatmates on the plane, and you get to talk. And then the person you tell the person, well, any day you're in Nigeria, just give yeah. me come, oh, come yeah. over, come yeah. over, come over. Yeah. And then two weeks later, the person shows up in a box in front of your door. Mm. You're going to run away, like, come on, now that was I was just being polite. <laughs> I was just was so just conversation. <laughs> yeah, just polite. So the same thing with Bruce, you know, he was just being polite. He he wasn't cruel, he wasn't evil, but that was that was his uh, very nature. And then he is this intrusion, whether you want to call it the intrusion of westernization, um, you know, with their goods, with their shiny, empty goods, whether that's what you want to look at it, even from the colonial or pre-colonial point of view of what was the ideal, what kind of life were we living, and then what happened to it when something which is outside of it suddenly intrudes, and what are the consequences for the people in this society? Does it make the society better? Or does it ruin them? Or does it send them on this wild goose chase like our young protagonist? Any specific vision for how you wanted the characters in this book to be? If yes, did it change in the course of writing the story? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good question. Again, because um, it went, like I said, when we started talking, I said that one of the things that I do is that you know, that I tend to spend a lot of time mulling, mulling books or stories before I eventually come down to, to writing them. And so when I started writing this, I'll have to say that there were two things that were very clear, the beginning and the end. That was very clear. I had, I knew that he would eventually go to Rome. And then of course, spoiler alert again, I can't say what happens to him over there. But I was very conscious of the fact that I was going to do both. So those were clear. But the things that happened in between, um, there were changes. Of course, it keeps, it keeps changing as you're writing. You know? But the, when I started, I had an idea of the beginning. I had a very clear idea of the end. And that never changed. OK, that never changed. But a lot of things came, a lot of things came um, into play in between. So the middle was not clearly formed. Uh, even in my consciousness, you know, and I, I discovered the middle as I went along. But both ends were already bookended and they were already uh, open, uh, started clearly. What was the main inspiration for the title of your novel? That's when, a, that's a when great question. Ready the Stars will appear. That's a great question to which I have no clear answer because I don't know where it came from. Yeah, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great question, but it's a title that came to me while I was writing the book. And I just scribbled it down, you know. Um, but then again, I think that it's an homage to an expression that uh, when the people are ready, the leader will appear. Okay. So when the people are ready, the leader will appear. When the sky is ready, the stars will appear. When the continent is ready, instead of these brilliant minds streaming away, to some other place. Maybe when the continent is ready, it will be ready to accommodate them and they can be stars, they can shine within the continent. Uh, 
without having to go to other places to shine. The places that already have the lights that are already shining. So make of that what you will. But to be honest, it wasn't something I spent a lot of time thinking uh, to, you know, to, to kind of carve it and make it up. And no, it's not that precious. I didn't, I didn't think of it so much, you know. Uh, one of the things that as always, one of the, it's, I'm so sad to disappoint you, but you know, the, I remember listening to the soccer star uh, Pelé, the Brazilian soccer star, and you know, and the, the man was asking him, what's the meaning of the name Pelé? And he said, it's just a nickname. It's not, it's not anything important. And as, as a young man, I was so disappointed because I was like, Pelé is one of the most famous names in the world. Why are you dismissing it? Like, but that's really the truth. The title wasn't something that I, but you know, it sounds profound and deep and it's, it is in a way, but it's not something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. And also an encapsulation of your style because it's long, we, there are no commas, but it just, yeah. it just rolls, it's just beautiful. It just unspools yeah. on the tongue. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, you've just, uh, you've just uh, riffed on the title now for us. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you feel about the, you, because the issue of uh, irregular migration or migration in general or the brain drain, it mutates all the time. And we're currently now in Nigeria in the Japa generation. Everybody is leaving. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're not hearing so much now of the people leaving by the desert and the sea. Uh, we've, over the last couple of days, been uh, concerned um, about images of Haitian um, refugees being herded by border guards on horseback uh, mm -hmm. by the sea and all of that. And, uh, you know, these are Black people. And uh, so I wonder just how you, you know, what, how you feel about the situation with the disaffection uh, of our in our societies and people's need to leave and how the the Western powers are confronting that and it's again the humiliation of the black body. People from Haiti are darker than you and I, and I bet that if the border between the United States was between the United States and Africa, a world that would touch heaven like the one in the days of Bible will be built to keep black people out. The way black people have been brought here is by force and through slavery. And so that was deliberate. Now, if they consciously want to come of their own free will, there is an attempt to keep them out. One of the things that has made me very excited and happy about this book's release is how germane and how relevant this topic remains. You know, because even yesterday, the image that you talked about was the first thing that woke me up when I checked the news on my phone. Okay, so it's something that is not going to end. I was reading about the, uh, the fact that thousands of Nigerian medical doctors are now living for the UK. You know, thousands of them living for the UK. I say, well, long live the Agbo sellers. That is going to help, to help, to help. Without Agbo, maybe everybody would die. But that, you know, it's sad. It's sad that we are still living in droves. I don't blame those who leave, you know, because um, there is a, there is a Yoruba saying, I think there has been, I don't even know how to say it in Yoruba, but it says that no matter how bad your child is, you don't drive your child and drive your child into the mouth of a lion. 
Is that is that is there something like that? Am I making this up? There's something like that, but I don't want to risk trying to. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, but but <laughs> trying to articulate it right now. Right. Yes. Yes. So you don't drive your mouth. You, you no matter how stubborn your child is, you don't feed your child to a lion. That's yeah, I think that's... the saying is, "Oh my Nikki, buru kafe child is you don't yes. give it to the tiger to eat so yes. that's very good very good but that's what is literally happening the continent is literally giving its children to tiger to the tiger as a meal whether the tiger is the sea whether the tiger is the desert whether the tiger is um uh, the economic uncertainty that they're going to face as migrants it's very shocking um but that's really why this book is uh, kind of apropos now because you know, it's, it's it's one would have thought that oh, this issue is dead and gone. People are no longer people are no longer talking about this. You know, the world is at peace now. Uh, the issue of migration has rested. No, it's going. It's something that keeps bubbling because the continent is usually in a state of disrepair, as it were, and is spewing and sending its children to to the tiger to be eaten. Those who escape escape through just by the whiskers. Indeed, indeed. So we're coming to a, a, a bit of a, to a close. I just have about three questions and I'd like to encourage everyone, anyone that has uh, any further questions to quickly uh, drop them in so that we can put them to the author. Miss Koi Koi is in this reading. Now, this is a story largely of men. Now with the women, especially you've already talked about uh, Nene. Now, Ayira. Um, can you talk about that character uh, for us a bit? Uh, because uh, the, the only female among the travelers and what you were trying to do with her character. This used to be a journey mostly of, of women, of men rather. Yeah. It used to be for the longest time. It used to be the road to Libya is so fraught that it was a journey that was mostly undertaken by men. Um, usually the women who take the journeys, even now that they've started taking the journeys, are usually uh, led by what they call burgers, by people who are like uh, a guide, people who want to take them to certain places to do certain things for them. Okay, so it's not, it's not surprising that the dominant voice uh, is the male voice uh, because of the nature of this journey, how odious it is. How proud to this time, very few women undertook the journey. But as the continent continues to get economically more perilous, more and more women are going on this trip. Some of them are going to work as servants in Jordan. Some of them are going to the trips to, to, to Rome, like the men, and to a bunch of other places. So that is really the actual impulse for not having um, a, lot of, a lot of them there. But you know, Iris case, she's on this journey and uh, her own story is also um, a fascinating one. You know, her life story, her own narrative is a fascinating one and also goes to kind of highlight all the things that women go through uh, in the continent and in Nigeria and the society that she's coming from. And in fact, uh, it doesn't even stop because the other travelers kind of sneer, even though they carry dreams, they carry their own dreams and they feel like their own dreams are legitimate. Because she's female, they feel like her own dream should be smaller and is somewhat less legitimate than their own. You know, so they need to check their own privilege as men. So that we have that in that story. And it's also interesting that Bruce does not feel like 
uh, he was good enough until until he goes to Rome and comes back, then he can talk to Miss Koi Koi about being in love. Uh, on Miss Koi Koi, the name evokes teary laughter. Could the author use this opportunity to talk about naming his character? Yeah, that's that's a great question because it's not just here, but even in my uh, in my short story from five thousand years ago called Waiting, you know, the characters were named after the the names on their t-shirts. You know, it's, it's something that has always fascinated me because it's if you go back to to the earliest fictions, you know, character, you know, character is faith. Like Aristotle famously said, I hope it's Aristotle, not Plato. Um, I hope it's one of the Greeks anyway that said character is faith. You know, your character is faith. Your name is your faith in most cases. Um, you have Martin L. Halton's short story titled Young Goodman Brown where the character is literally young and a good person and he's innocent. So it's something that is also very important. Even in Nigeria, the idea of naming now has become very important. Uh, the idea of conversion from Abraham to Abraham, from, uh, you know, from Saul to Paul. And the idea of uh, people now consciously uh, giving their children names that are aspirational you know, that are aspirational rather than circumstantial, which used to be the case historically. Okay, so that's that's also something that I find that I find fascinating. Um, that you know, names mean so much more than in especially in my part of the world, that names mean much more than they do here. Because I usually ask my students here, you know, we're reading a novel from India called uh, The White Tiger where names also mean everything. Names means you, you hear the man's last name, you can tell his cast, you can tell the job that he's going to be doing. You know, and we, we talk about that a lot because I, you know, I'll ask, you know, what does your last name mean? And the person will say, oh, it's just wood. And I say, no, it probably shows that your ancestors worked with wood. Uh, so they were carpenters or people who had a conscious relationship with wood one way or another. You know, and the person said, oh, I never thought of that. And I said, well, if your last name is coal, then your ancestry has to do with coal miners, coal mining. That's, that's the truth. You know, but the great thing about your society is that you are not now a coal miner. You know, because that would, if that society was a society where social aspirations, where you, there was a glass ceiling, okay, and it simply meant that you would not be anything more than someone who mines coal. Uh, so naming names are very important. There's social mobility. Yes, that's the word I was scrambling around. Yes, if there was no social mobility, then you're bound, your, your leg is tied to being a coal miner. So names are very important to me. But also, I kind of wanted something, uh, something that you noticed in that name is that I wanted it to be both humorous and also, you know, uh, so humorous and also didactic at the same time, you know. So her name is both humorous and circumstantial. You know, she's called Miss Koiko, and that's the that that doesn't surprise me because teachers often get nicknames much more than any other set. Thank you. Towards the end of the novel, we see statues, and they seem to be telling the narrator that the naked can be proud, mm -hmm. can have dignity. The same can be said of the band of travelers in your novel. You know, you told the story and we've already talked about the dignity of them. Uh, if you can just say something about the, the kind of people that you write about, 
from your previous writings. I mean, we would say that, you know, that writers we could name and would say they write about upper middle class people, but you don't, you don't, you, you don't seem to be in that box. So if you can just talk about, you know, the ordinary people that you, would it be correct to say that you write about the common, common man or woman or? Maybe that's what interests me. You know, um, I, I think that good writing brings meaning. You know, that's, that's something that has often been said that writing, interesting writing brings me. Um, I'm really, really not curious about who I like. You know, it doesn't hold any fascination for me, if, both as a writer and as a reader. I'm more interested in those who, who are probably not like me, not familiar. Okay. So that's, that's a conscious, I want to write away from myself and write into those who I do not know so much so I can discover. Thank you so much, Isio Sondru. Thank you for the wonderful opportunity. Uh, we're really proud that we'll be take, taking this to readers everywhere. And um, as uh, Lola Shunei, the publisher said, we have big dreams for this book. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to this journey with when the sky is ready, the stars will appear. Thank you so much for well, sharing about your writing and this book. Uh, here with you. I've, I've been a fan for a very long time, right from the days of uh, uh, What's Body. So it's, it's always good to, to see you, if, if only just virtually. Thank you so much. And thank you, Lola, and thank you for everybody. Thanks to everybody at uh, Reader Books for making this happen. And everything you're doing to, to, to make the book. Thank you. Get people to buy and read the book. I hope everyone goes out and gets it.